This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. Every toolbox should be equipped with a variety of tools. And we recognize that each tool has an intended purpose. And as I've worked alongside people who really know what they're doing, I've learned a lot about tools and repairing and fixing things. One of the things that you'll hear very frequently is that you should only use a tool for its intended purpose. And as an example of that, I have these tools. And you can obviously see the difference. This is a screwdriver. And yet these tools represent one of the most common ways we misuse tools. A screwdriver is meant to turn screws, tighten and loosen. Pry bar is meant to use leverage to separate things. Yet, I would say that most people that I know have at one point taken a flat-bladed screwdriver and jammed it in something and pried with it. And that's a big no-no if you talk to those guys who know what they're doing. Why? Because you risk ruining your screwdriver, bending it by applying pressure in the wrong way. And then when you go to turn a screw, well, it doesn't work because it's not in the right shape. The other risk you run is damaging the material that you're working with. Now, the opposite's true. I mean, you could try and use a pry bar to turn a screw. I've used a lot of different things to turn a screw. But you're going to run into the same kind of issue, damaging the material that you're working with. Now, just so you're aware, they have come up with, by ingenuity and design, tools to bridge the gap between these two things. This is one in particular. This is a small, inexpensive tool that's designed to open a paint can. But what most people would use a screwdriver to pry open, they have a, a tool that's made much like a screwdriver with a bent blade that you hook right under the lid and pop the lid off without doing any damage to your screwdriver. Just thought I'd let you know about that. It's important to recognize that there are times when we're tempted to grab the wrong tool and use it in the way it's not intended to be used. Most of the time that happens in the case of an emergency, when we're faced with an unexpected problem. And because of the, the pressure of the moment, the emergency that we face, we reach for the nearest tool, the closest thing to us. And we try and fix the problem with what we have in our hands. And very often it's a temporary fix, something that won't last, something that we're going to have to come back and and do properly later, and yet because of the emergency, we've reached out and, and grabbed something to use in a temporary way, in an inappropriate way sometimes. And when we do that, sometimes we create more problems for ourselves than if we'd taken the time to go and get the appropriate tool to use in that situation. Now, there are other reasons why we reach for the wrong tool. One of those reasons, I would say, is, is laziness. Now, um, last week, my wife wanted me to hang something in one of the bedrooms at our house. And I had the, the thing that she wanted me to hang and a nail. We had just recently purchased it. And I didn't have a hammer. And I was upstairs in our house, and my tool chest is in the basement. And so I was holding the nail and this piece of art. And I was thinking, I'm going to have to go down two flights of stairs to get a hammer, come back up those two flights of stairs, drive one nail, and then go back down two flights of stairs to put my hammer back. So I looked around, and I found a marker. And I used the cap of the marker, and I pushed the nail into the drywall and hung that piece of art. Now, that's not what a marker is designed to do. 
It's not even a tool. But I was too lazy to go to the basement. And so I grabbed what was close to me to solve the problem. Now, luckily, that's not something I'm going to have to go back and fix. However, I did run the risk of damaging that marker. But I was willing to risk it because it's just a marker and I can throw it away if I ruined it in the process. But notice how easy it is for us to to grab what's close, what's convenient, to try and resolve issues in our lives. When we experience tragedy, when we face overwhelming difficulty that comes suddenly, it represents this kind of emergency that leaves us frantically grabbing, scrambling to find a way to fix the situation, to resolve that emergency so that it will produce limited damage in our lives to protect the people around us from being damaged by what's happening. But that's not always the best solution for us, and it's certainly not always a long-term fix. But we all understand what that feels like to experience tragedy and to, to scramble to try and resolve what's happening in our lives. Maybe you know what that is to experience tragedy. Maybe you've lost a loved one recently, and you've had to walk through the pain and difficulty of mourning that loss and walking through the grieving process. Maybe the tragedy you have been dealt is the loss of a job, one that you really love but that is no longer available to you. Maybe it's a a promotion that you were hoping for, that you were told you, you have a great chance of getting this and then found out you weren't getting that promotion. Maybe it's it's a job that you had applied for and had high hopes of making a change in your life, only to find out that that new job was not a possibility. Maybe the tragedy you're dealing with is a broken relationship and the broken heart that goes with that. Maybe a friendship that you've had for a very long time ended suddenly. Maybe you've had a dream for so long and the tragedy you've experienced is that that dream finally slipped out of your reach and you have come to realize that it is no longer a possibility for your future and you're, you're mourning the loss of that dream. Maybe retirement is your tragedy. You're not ready to stop working, and yet you find yourself at that place in time. Maybe health represents the tragedy you've faced. You've received an unwanted diagnosis, unexpected diagnosis that means a lot of change for you personally. Or maybe you're getting to a point in life where you're not enjoying the, the health and freedom that you once had because of the limitations physically that you're experiencing. Maybe You've lost your financial stability recently, your savings. You've had a huge unexpected bill that wiped out that confidence. Maybe your tragedy is that you find yourself now with an empty nest, wondering what you're going to do with the time that you have as you worry about those kids that are no longer under your roof. We all have shared in this experience of tragedy. We know what it feels like to to feel that, sudden loss, that emptiness, that brokenness that comes. And with that tragedy, we also share in the experience of grief. Grief is the natural response to tragedy, but it can easily become an obstacle of its own. As we've all experienced tragedy, we've all experienced grief, the natural response that can be a healthy means of learning to live after tragedy, but it can also become an insurmountable obstacle that we cannot easily overcome. Grief, uh, by definition, consists of stages. Denial, bargaining, anger, depression, and acceptance. Stages that are tangible, they're very recognizable. And while we move through grief, 
The hope is that we would move through the stages of grief, that we would see the progress, that we would work our way out of, find that end to grief. But the reality of grief is that it isn't linear, it isn't necessarily cyclical, but that it is more chaotic. We might experience a couple of of those stages of grief in order and then find ourselves back at the first stage again. And that feels like regression. It feels like we're failing at grieving. And yet that's the nature of grief. It moves us in ways we don't expect as those stages sometimes come out of order. Sometimes we experience multiple stages at once. And while it's a process we have to move through, we frequently don't understand the grief that we are facing. When we look to Scripture, we find evidence of grief, stories of those who walked through grief and how the Lord worked in those moments. One of those stories is found in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, a very long book that describes one man's incredible journey of loss and the grief that he experienced through it. Job was a good man, faithful to the Lord, careful to obey God, even not only for himself, but for his children. And he became a test subject as he experienced an incredible amount of loss. One day, a servant of his came running up with the message. We were attacked in the fields as we were caring for the oxen and donkeys. They were all stolen. All of the servants who were watching them were killed. I was the only one who survived to come back and tell you about this horrible tragedy. Devastating news. While Job was reeling from that, another servant ran up with another message. There was a fire, blazed out of control. All of the sheep in the field were consumed by that fire. The servants watching over them perished, except for me. I escaped to bring this horrible news to you. And then another servant ran up with more bad news. The camels that we were watching were stolen and attacked. All the servants were killed. I was the only one who survived to come and bring you this news. Devastating news as Job was reeling from the loss of his livelihood, his wealth. Another servant ran up and said, Job, I have to tell you, all of your kids were having a meal together, celebrating, feasting under a tent, and a massive wind came up and blew the tent down, and everyone in the tent perished. Your children, the servants, No one is left alive except for me. Job lost his wealth, his possessions, the means of producing more wealth. His children passed away all in the same day. A short time later, as Job was mourning and trying to recover, he was afflicted with his health and painful open sores covered his body from head to toe. And the only relief he could find was to take broken pottery, ceramic, and scrape his body with it. And as he sat scraping his body, we hear about how the story progressed, how the people around him met him in his tragedy, in his sorrow, in his grief. His wife looked at him, broken, empty, covered in sores. And you know what she said to him? You should curse God and die. There's no hope left for you. It's over. And Job's response to her was this. Will you accept only the good from God and not the bad? Still, his outlook was positive, recognizing God's presence in his life. Job had some friends that came to sit with him in his grief. For seven days, they sat and said nothing. And while they were with him, Job started 
pondering, thinking about his situation, and came to this conclusion that he cursed the day he was born. He longed for death and hated his life because of the tragedy that he, ex- he had experienced. When his friends, after those seven days, began talking to him about his situation, they started to speculate about why. Why did all this happen? What do you need to do, Job, to move through this and move beyond it? And their conclusion was, Job, you, you must have sinned at some point. And this unrepentant sin that you're not willing to confess is standing between you and God. And that's why you're being punished. Now, the people in Job's life were both helpful and hurtful. In times of grief, I believe that people truly want to help, but we just don't always know how to help. One of the most meaningful ways that Job's friends were a help to him in his grief was how they were willing to just be present with him in that time that extended time, to just sit in silence and and support him with their presence and be an encouragement to them, giving him strength and peace as they were willing to to remain by his side. That's one of the most meaningful and effective ways that we can support someone through their grief is to just remind them that they're not alone, that we're there for them, that we're willing to be there with them. Job's friends also did some very unhelpful things. Notice how much of what was said to Job in his grief was actually more damaging than it was helpful. His wife in particular, very damaging. Curse God and die. There's no hope. His friends also very damaging. It's important for us when we want to support someone who's experiencing grief to remember to carefully guard what it is that we say to them. Be careful with our words so that we don't do more harm than good. As a general rule, cliches, not very helpful. (laughs) Phrases that are very superficial about reasons why, about God. Uh, While we want to be an encouragement, sometimes we create more difficulty and confusion and questions than bring help. Maybe you've experienced tragedy, a loss, and you've been walking through grief. Maybe it's in your past. Maybe you're going through that right now. And, And you know that the support of people is very helpful and meaningful that having them with you and present in your life is a great experience. However, much of what they say is not very helpful. And usually in the, in the course of dealing with tragedy and loss, you aren't even able to process and effectively receive information. And much of what people say in the short time after loss is forgotten or not received. And after that, many of the comments that people make often creates much more difficulty than providing help. Job's friends came to the conclusion that Job must have sinned. It was therefore being punished because of his sin. Job knew that this wasn't the case, that he had been faithful and careful in his living. But think about the damage that their assessment would have caused to Job if he wasn't that confident or another person in Job's place. Think about how they would have added guilt to his grief how they would have created this wedge between Job and God at a time when he desperately needed the presence of God, more so maybe than any other time in his life. It's important for us to be careful with the words that we use to encourage others and to weigh the words that we hear when we're walking through grief carefully, protecting our hearts and minds from the damage people might unwillingly do. Grief naturally produces questions. And so the the comments that people make to us also encourage those questions to come about. The questions we have in times of grief are rooted in uncertainty, fear, 
doubt, even despair. Most people have answerable questions when they grieve. They want to know how the situation came about. And they can look back and see how some things unfolded. They also have unanswerable questions when they deal with grief. And those questions usually begin with why. It it is so difficult to come to a conclusion about why things happen, or more specifically, why things happen to me. Another unanswerable question that people have is, will I ever feel whole again? This loss has created an emptiness, a, a void that I don't know will ever be filled, if I'll ever feel whole again. And in the course of that grief is, is not an answerable question, even though most of us recognize what happens after you move through grief. It's a journey that every individual has to take in order to find some answer to that question. There are other questions that come about God and faith when we experience loss and grief. Questions similar to the others, but more specific to our relationship with the Lord. Why would, why would a God who is good allow bad things to happen? And more personally, why would, why would God do this to me? Questions that we ask are valid questions. They're, they represent real concerns that we have. Coming from our confusion, uncertainty, the emptiness that we feel in difficult times. But they also represent unanswered questions, lingering doubts that we have had about God that we may not have ever taken time to address. And in our times of grief, we're no longer busy pushing ourselves. We have time to be introspective, to think through those moments and to to be confronted by those doubts and questions that we've never addressed. I think many of us have some of those questions deep within, some of those doubts that need to be dealt with. I, I can remember in my younger years growing up being pressured to ignore doubt, feeling like it was off limits for me to question God, to question my relationship with him, to vocalize doubts that I had in thinking about who God was and what my relationship with him looked like. It was, it was almost like Acknowledging that I had questions and doubts meant that I didn't have the faith that I needed, and it was inappropriate for me to say those things out loud. But as we recognize those lingering questions and doubts, especially as they come to surface in difficult times, we need to not be afraid to feel what we're feeling, to think what we're thinking, and to ask the questions that are present or even talk about the doubts that emerge. And what I've found to be true is that God is capable of handling our doubts. God is capable of handling our questions. He is all-powerful, all-knowing God. He created us. He knows our history and our background. He knows what we're thinking. He knows the motives of our hearts. And for us to think, well, I have this question about God, I shouldn't be able to say it is a very damaging thought process as we limit our relationship with God and hold back from him these genuine concerns that we need to explore. And the only way that we can truly resolve them is to open up our lives and allow God to answer them, to give him room to help us resolve those questions and doubts, to let him bring people into our lives, to 
to let him point us to Scripture and to genuinely seek out positive ways to answer those questions and let God prove to us who he is, his power, and his plan that's working in our lives and in the world around us. God is so capable. And yet, most often, when we face difficulty and grief, our natural response is to push away from God because we have questions, because we have doubts, because we're angry at God. We want to separate and deal with those on our own. And so we try to muddle through. And yet, most people, when they push back from God, will slowly turn away and seek after other things, never answering, never resolving those questions and doubts. Instead of pushing away from God as we struggle, we should step toward God and bring those questions and doubts to him. One of the examples in Scripture that's been especially meaningful to me is the the story of Lazarus, who was sick, who died. A man who Jesus called back out of the tomb. The story begins with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, all of whom were very close friends of Jesus. And when Lazarus fell ill, Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, inviting him to come back to care for their brother. And Jesus delayed. When he finally went to see them, Lazarus had already passed away. And both Mary and Martha confronted Jesus, saying, if you had just been here, if only you had come sooner, our brother wouldn't have died. They were hoping, expecting Jesus to heal Lazarus. And when Jesus arrived too late, they placed the blame on him. And when Jesus heard those accusations, he didn't get angry with them. He didn't tell them, no, it's not acceptable for you to speak to me that way. He listened to them. He responded to them, not in anger, but in kindness, helping to explain his plan and how he would display his power and his glory. As Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, he looked around him and saw the Jews that had gathered to mourn the loss of Lazarus. They were all weeping. They were all crying. Mary and Martha were both crying, mourning the loss of their brother. And when Jesus looked around him and saw their sorrow, we read this very concise verse in God's word. It says, Jesus wept. Such a short statement, but full of so much meaning that Jesus felt the emotions of the moment. He recognized the pain of those around him and he shared in that pain. He was present with them. And when we experience tragedy, we also experience the emotions that go with that tragedy. That's how we were made to respond. It isn't wrong for us to have those emotions. It isn't wrong for us to feel those emotions. When Mary and Martha confronted Jesus, we see this incredible picture of God in the flesh, willing to hear, willing to listen, willing to answer, willing to be present. And we need to be reminded of that compassion of God. That he wept with them, that he shared in their pain and felt the emotions that they were feeling and reminded them that their questions, their accusations, weren't out of bounds. And the best place for them to find answers was to take them to him. It's an incredibly powerful tool for us to remember God's understanding of us, God's willingness to be present. 
and his compassion in the darkest of times. There are other tools that we've been given to help us move through our grief, tools that we should pick up and use. One of those tools is community, of the people that God has placed in our lives to, to walk with us through our grief. From Job's example, from the way that Jesus supported his friends, we see the value of community, of people who are present. To help us weather the storms of life, they support us with their strength. They bring peace to us simply by being present with us. Even if it means simply just sitting and not saying anything, but walking through that grief with us. There are also times when we need to talk. And there are specific friends who are good at listening, and we need to find those friends who are willing to to give us room to unpack the weight of grief that's heavy on our shoulders. But maybe sometimes there's a need for us to to talk to a group of people, like a grief share group, where we can walk alongside those who have already experienced grief or who are currently experiencing grief as a safe environment for us to talk about what's going on in our lives and talk about the difficulties that we're facing and find healing together. Dane mentioned this morning another great tool that we've been given is, is praise and worship to God. And there's some incredible power in the in the music that we use to lift the name of God high, that ministers to our souls in a way that nothing else can. As we hear songs, as we sing songs or play music, we, we are given this incredible peace that helps us resolve emotions as an outlet for the things that we're experiencing. Another tool we need to pick up is the tool that helps us break down misconceptions, maybe a hammer, uh, to overcome damaging mindsets, especially in terms of grief, the mindset that says, I have to be strong. I can't deal with these emotions right now because there's so many people around me that need me. And so because of that, I'm going to pack these emotions and not deal with them right now so that I can carry everybody else through this pain. That's such a damaging and harmful way to navigate through grief, to try and ignore the pain that we're feeling. Why? Because that pain will be present. We will have to deal with that grief at some point, and it will intensify the longer we leave it. And it has the potential to produce so much more damage in the meantime. Grief is a process of healing that we must move through, that we have to endure. We cannot skirt our way around it. We cannot jump over it. We cannot ignore it and hope it goes away. We have to deal with it. And every attempt we make to avoid the process will only delay the inevitable. It will still be waiting for us. Living beyond grief can only take place when we're willing to walk through it. And yet we sometimes, in the midst of our grief, reach for things to help deal with it, reach for tools that we need to use to navigate that grief. And we often use different coping mechanisms to deal with the difficulties of life, especially our our pain and our grief. Some of these coping mechanisms are good and healthy. They're among the, the tools that we want to take out of the toolbox and use in a healthy way to overcome difficulties. They're useful because they, they, they are meant to be used for self-care. There are other coping mechanisms that are not helpful. They're the wrong tool for the job. They're detrimental to us here and now, and they also create bigger long-term problems in our lives. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about the danger of temptation and sin. And the example I used was a hostess snack cake. And we all very easily can recognize the temptation to indulge 
in such a wonderful thing. And it represented for many of us a, a common temptation. And some of you talked to me about how, how readily you understand or understood what I was talking about. I want, I want you to think in terms of that little indulgence and revisit that as we think of what that represents for us in terms of an unhealthy coping mechanism. When a behavior is used to numb us to the pain that we should be feeling, that coping mechanism becomes a means of self-medication. No longer self-care, self-medication. When we, when we self-medicate, we seek to forget, ignore, be distracted from, or even numb ourselves to a problem or pain. A problem or pain that needs to be resolved, but instead of resolving it, we choose instead to be distracted from it. The danger of self-medication is that it never resolves pain. The pain is still present and real. And the longer we spend ignoring it, the greater that pain grows. And it will be waiting for us. When we utilize self-medication to take our minds off of pain, we actually create even more difficulty in our lives. Sometimes because the pain or problem we've been trying to ignore grows. Sometimes because the method of distraction becomes the problem or an addiction. Now, there are many different ways that people try to distract themselves from their troubles through self-medication. Some take what is good, like a hostess snack cake, and abuse it. And the process of comfort eating or stress eating uses flavor and the process of chewing and consuming as a cathartic action to bring peace, to distract from pain. And yet it damages us physically as we experience the health consequences of overindulgence. There are other people who feel affirmation and seek out that affirmation. And they spend mind-numbing hours on social media, posting, scrolling, commenting, getting likes and shares because they're thriving on the rush that comes from constant affirmation. In reality, they're simply numbing themselves to the reality outside of that digital realm. There are others that seek out more dangerous methods of self-medication that produce significant difficulty. These sometimes utilize chemical distraction from pain, drunkenness, and drug use. Affect the mind so that they no longer feel pain. Sometimes the method of escaping reality comes from pursuing sexual partners or pornography. And the additional damage of these patterns and addictions will do much more long-term harm than the grief that we need to experience ever could. In order for us to move through grief, we have to stop trying to ignore it. If we ever hope to have life beyond grief, we have to move through it. And maybe that's the most powerful tool at our disposal is hope. A hope that elevates our perspective. A hope that reminds us of the end of grief. That reminds us of the life after. That reminds us that even though those memories will remain, even though we may never forget what has happened, all of those experiences make life more meaningful as we recognize just how valuable the moments we have with family are, the moments we have to share together, how precious they are, even though they're fleeting. The last portion of the book of Job 
It tells us about how God intervened in Job's life. God entered into the conversation with Job, questioning Job, reminding Job of his power, of his presence, of how he created everything around and has been continually exerting himself to sustain what he created. Chapter 42, we read this response of Job. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Well, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What Job received from God was perspective through God's words. He spoke to Job about his power, about Job's place in his creation. And Job recognized that while he didn't understand everything about God or what God was doing, that he could still place his hope and trust in God. That he could still look up and trust that God would carry him through what he was dealing with. That he could find hope even when he thought no hope remained. The writer of Hebrews teaches us about what this hope looks like. It says this, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And the hope that we have in God is a foundation for us to move through grief. It is an anchor that keeps us from being blown off course. It's an anchor that helps us weather the storms of life and keep our faith intact. When we lean on God, when we trust in his presence, when we rely on our relationship with Jesus Christ, we have an anchor We have a hope that can't be taken from us by anything else. The hope we have in Christ keeps our perspective focused on eternity and on the life that he's calling us to live here and now. It's a hope that motivates us, a hope that provides for us, a hope that brings strength and comfort and peace, even in the most difficult of times. And it's a hope that's available to all who belong to the Lord. And so this morning, I want to challenge you to think about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you to look to him as your source of strength and peace, to find in him a hope that you can't find anywhere else. That hope is available to those who have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that this morning, I want to encourage you to make that decision. If you have a decision to make this morning, if there's anything in your life that you need prayer for, I'd encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing together. Please stand.